Welcome to Cinema of Meaning, the podcast that seeks to explore the depths of what cinema has to offer. My name is Tom, you may know me as the creator of Like Stories of Old, and I'm joined by fellow video essayist Thomas Flight to talk about Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Thomas, what made you want to talk about Steven Spielberg's classic film, Jurassic Park? Well, it is, as you said, a classic. It's one of those mm-hmm. that just is kind of surprisingly timeless. Like, this could easily have been a movie that, like, would look extremely corny and, like, mm-hmm. out of date now. But it holds up surprisingly well. There's a new Jurassic World film coming out that people are... I haven't seen it, but people are... I have. <laughs> it's <laughs> people, not as good. <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> as good. I think that's part of the reason this is an interesting movie to discuss because like if you had any franchise where you could say like we should be able to make a better version of this today, like better CGI dinosaurs, better special effects, like all of these things, a better Jurassic Park in theory should be within our grasp. And yet you can watch the new the newest Jurassic Park, watch this one, have a much more entertaining, enjoyable thoughtful time i think with the original probably than with the new one Mm -hmm. i I haven't seen it but that seems to be what people are saying so yeah it's it's a fun film it's a spielberg classic there's formally i think with the filmmaking it's very interesting it has some provocative ideas about science and humanity and hubris and technology so yeah it should be fun to kind of dive in and, and chat about it what about you yeah yeah it was definitely an interesting movie to revisit not long after i saw Jurassic World Dominion and just um, right now I'm not sure when this episode is going to release but right now I'm working on a video actually on adventure movies that dives deep into Jurassic World and why the old ones work and the newer ones less so. It's an interesting like comparative case study almost in how to build tension, how to do things with visual storytelling, how to make the dinosaurs which are basically just animals really, and make them an interesting part of the narrative and have them, like, infuse them with thematic meaning, with symbolic meaning, and just basically tell a good story. And that, it was almost refreshing to see Jurassic Park again. It's not a movie that I rewatch a lot or that I haven't rewatched a lot as an adult, but I used to watch it all the time when I was a child. And I was actually watching it with my girlfriend the other day, and she was, like, shocked at how young I was when I first saw it because it came out in 1993 and I remember like my dad took me to see the second one The Lost World in theater when it came out in 1997. Oh wow. So at that time I was already like a big fan. I had already seen like the first one a hundred times and I got all the toys but I was born in 1991. So at the time of The Lost World I was like six years old. So yeah. Yeah. And it's a pretty scary movie, but yeah. <laughs> Were you, do you remember being like terrified by it? Not really. Like the amazingness of the dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. Overshadowed like the scary parts. Yeah. The only part I didn't like as a child was the kitchen scene with Lex and Tim, which because that maybe because that was a scene that just involved children that I as a child related to the most at the time. That part like weirdly hit close to home or or like I could imagine myself in that situation but yeah it was the funny thing is like I had the original on VHS and I had these like damaged marks because at around the time where the helicopter would fly to the island because I would always fast forward it to that part because (laughs) I had the English or the original version with like Dutch subtitles because I didn't speak any English yet But I also, I was still too young to really keep up with the subtitles. So a lot of the early parts, they kind of, I couldn't follow them. So I would just skip ahead to the part where they just get to the island. (laughs) But from there, like even now, like I remembered it like pretty vividly and clearly what went on. And it's just such a, it's so telling about just the strength of the visual storytelling in this movie that I didn't really consider when I, until I grew like much older and I was like amazed that, oh wait, I could totally follow this movie even when I didn't understand what was being said or couldn't follow the dialogue. So yeah, that, that's something I wanted to talk about as well, just how Steven Spielberg pulls you in just almost like a silent movie. Like yeah. it just, it makes it so you can mute it almost or scramble the dialogue into some weird 
language that no one understands and you will still have some grasp actually on the story, I think. There's so many sequences that I think work amazingly, even if you had no concept of the context of the story, you could drop people into the scene and turn off the dialogue and it's like, goat is there, goat's gone, something big took the goat like mm-hmm. now something big is coming for you. It's like <laughs> the ingredients that make up the the tension can be communicated very simply. A, a very good example of that is the scene in like with the car and the tree where like what is making that suspenseful is communicated like very visually. It's like, oh, he's bumping the steering wheel that the wheel is turning that's causing it to shift. It's like you can feel the tension of it. You can feel the mm-hmm. suspense of it without needing any explanation of what's going on. There's a lot of that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. throughout the film. Yeah, I think the best part about that is that it's not just the action scenes that are so visually clear. It's also like the exposition part. When One of my favorite scenes actually as a child was the scene where they have that lecture on how dinosaurs are made. Oh, the like the video at the beginning? Yeah, there's a sort of presentation and they show the, the, the cartoon about the mosquito. Yeah. Uh, landing on some dinosaur and then later they turn to the actual scientists but that's actually when you watch it now it's pure exposition like there's no yeah yeah, maybe there's like some other character stuff going on but really it's a scene that just explains how all this is supposed to make sense yeah but somehow they made it so visually interesting that even like five-year-old me thought it was a really engaging scene, even though I couldn't follow the dialogue. And I was just going based on the the pictures and the images. And it's a nice transition too, because it starts with this animation and then slowly it, I think they infuse like real images of like real digging sites. And then you actually, the stage kind of swivels and then you get to see the actual scientists and they get out. And then there's, then suddenly it's the reality. Like you have the egg hatching scene and then it's, it's suddenly real. It has this nice progression from like a concept from a cartoon animation to something that you can like actually see and touch. And that feels, at least in the context of the movie, like feels real. Yeah. Another thing he's doing with the exposition that I think is really interesting and makes it like more entertaining and not boring Mm -hmm. is the way that they're writing like foreshadowing into some of the exposition so like like in that scene for example they talk about there's all this exposition about like how they are setting up the park and how they got these dinosaurs but then there's also that little piece about like oh well they're they're all females and we're using this enzyme to keep males from being produced and that's how we keep them from mating out in the wild. And then that's how we're going to contain like the raptors or whatever. Yeah. And there's implications to the exposition beyond just like, oh, we're explaining how we got to this place. You can also start putting the pieces together in a way that like gives you clues about like, uh oh, this is going to be a problem mm-hmm. for our characters like in the near future. And they do that like throughout the film. But I think that makes it a little bit more engaging because you're not just sitting there like, okay, you're explaining to me like mm-hmm. why I'm, you know, you, you're, you're engaged with it. And it's, it's part of the mechanism that's building the mm-hmm. suspense for the film. Yeah. Because you're, you're saying like, you're basically giving false exposition because what they're saying isn't actually what turns out to be what is the case. Yeah. Like as a side note, there's a small detail that I didn't notice before. And that's in that same scene where they, also explain the genetic string that's made up of like millions of lines of DNA. And they go through this effort to explain like, oh, if you want to read it all, it takes like one second for each line. And if you do it eight hours straight for like so many years, then you'll still not be done or something like that. But then later in the movie, when it's it's a completely irrelevant scene, but there's when you have Nedry's character who scrambles the computer programming and then Arnold, he is looking through the code and he says like, oh, it's like, I'm going to have to reread every line and it's like 2 million lines. And then yeah. if I remember correctly, they, he mentions the exact same number of lines as the initial exposition scene mentions the lines of genetic code. And then in that earlier scene, we get the explanation already of how long something like that would take. And then here we have this irrelevant situation where it has the same implications, basically. We're already communicated that, okay, that's not going to be 
something that can he can do like in this amount of time. But that was just yeah. a small detail that I noticed. And there's a lot of those small things that popped up when I revisited the movie earlier. It's a very well constructed and written mm-hmm. film in, in terms of just like there's consistently good setup and payoff, not just visually, but in terms of concept. It speaks to something that I think this movie has a lot of that is often kind of missing from a lot of modern blockbusters or action kind of adventure films that I find where just like the amount of restraint this movie has in the first hour to constantly be like, you know, we're going to go have a whole scene at the raptor cage and not see them. And just like all you're going to see is the character's reaction to what Mm -hmm. they're seeing. And even when like they do show the and introduce the dinosaurs, there's a lot of time given to like, how are the characters feeling about this before we even as the audience get to see that, which I think is something that like some people miss out on is in especially now, this is almost the detriment sometimes to special effects and visual effects getting better in some cases mm-hmm. is like there's almost this desire to be like oh well, we can show these really cool environments or dinosaurs or whatever so let's just throw everything out there on screen instead of i think you can almost feel it's not in a bad way but you can almost feel there's a consciousness since they were using so much early digital mm-hmm. like visual effects in this film there was like an attention to like well we don't we have to frame the fake digital dinosaurs within a physical context and a reaction on either side because if we just put it up there you know it might look kind Mm -hmm. of fakey but if you see it right after these characters are like wow their jaws are hitting the floor and they're like wow this is amazing you can't help but like be kind of like invested in the amazement even if what you end up seeing is maybe like okay you know it's not that amazing like in reality i don't know i just like i'm impressed by the usage of that kind of like build up and investment in the human emotion Mm -hmm. prior to even revealing what we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, you see a lot of talk about how special effects were better back then, but that's, I I don't think that's actually true. Like it's clearly not true when you revisit Jurassic Park now. It's pretty, like some of the special effects are pretty dated, even like the early Brachiosaurus shot, like the big initial reveal of the dinosaurs. It feels kind of fake now but the emotion still sells it for me and it's just also because as you said it's not just like look at what we can do with special effects in 1993 it's also a relevant spectacle to the story and to the characters and to the more thematic implications of the story that will follow but yeah i do think that's actually something i talk about in my new video which will probably be out by the time you're hearing this while dinosaurs might look better now they also don't they don't always feel as real and that's i think something that's born from a growing sense of confidence in cgi and just letting it stand on its own whereas back in the 90s like jurassic park the lost world they still had to even if i think it was probably forced because of like lack of resources or knowledge about the cgi not being totally realistic yet or not realistic enough that they don't have to hide it a little bit the interesting almost side effect that happens from that which is why the dinosaurs still feel so real is that they're almost always like grounded in the environment they are always interacting either with some elements like rain or just the ground like there's that iconic shot where the tyrannosaurus steps into the mud it's like a shot i can still feel it almost the way it kind of goes like yeah (laughs) And there's obviously a lot of animatronics. Like they cut pretty fast between like a CGI shot and then an animatronic close-up. And that also really sells it. And just the interaction with the characters or with vehicles that are being thrown around or other stuff that gets destroyed. There's always, it feels like they always have a presence because of their interaction with the environment and not necessarily because of how real the dinosaurs themselves look. And that's, I think, what makes it so timeless in a way that's why you can still see it because i had the 4k ultra hd blu-ray for 
uh, I watch it for this one. And then when you have it upskilled to like the highest possible standard that we have now, you can definitely, like a lot of the flaws, they start to become more noticeable as well. Not just the CGI, but also like some certain scenes that are like a bit out of focus or something like other like small right. technical flaws in the movie that kind of make it charming, I guess, but they do become yeah. more noticeable. And yeah, CGI is also one of those. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about the dinosaurs being grounded in the physical world. Mm-hmm which is definitely, I think, a big part of what makes them continue to feel real. Another thing I thought about watching this was just even the physicality of the characters' interaction with the the world that they're in is something that's sometimes missing from, like, especially, I don't want to name any names, but certain hmm. cinematic universe films where, like, they feel like they're on a set and everything's just kind of flat and like dry and like nobody yeah. interacts with the environment in any kind of meaningful way besides maybe to jump off of something or be like smashed into it but like mm-hmm. there's like mud people are stepping in water and mud and it's raining and they're like covered in goo and like the environment is physical and breakable in a way that like some of the newer like green screen environment films it almost feels like if you've ever played a video game that's just way too like guarded and on the rails where like you can't walk through this bush or like, mm-hmm. you, you know, like things don't break that should break or fall. You know, it's like that's what some modern blockbusters feel like sometimes. Like the characters are just like on this little path. And you see when the characters themselves, they get dirtied or wounded. It's clearly like a makeup like, like right. do some dirt on the shoulder and then it looks yeah. like now he looks like he's been on an adventure. <laughs> right <laughs> this movie is like there's mud there's rain mm-hmm. like it, it's very physical which is something i don't know yeah. I've, i appreciated that yeah so let's dive into the deeper meanings a little bit yes it's yeah. obviously been a movie that's been talked about to death almost in terms of what it means and what it signifies i wanted to ask have you ever read the original novel that it's based on the michael Crichton novel no but i've heard it's good yeah, you've read it? I hadn't. I read it just for the podcast. So it was an interesting source to kind of compare the different yeah. types of story because it feels very different. It's more like a thriller. It's more a bit grittier. And there's some notable changes that I think are interesting also in what they reveal about Steven Spielberg's vision. Yeah. Like for me, the most notable difference besides, like there's some obviously stuff that got cut out because of length. Like there's this giant jungle cruise sequence that was sort of adapted into the third jurassic park film but they obviously yeah it's it's cut for time and it wouldn't it probably wouldn't have added much to the plot anyways but for me the most notable difference was hammond's character the boss or inventor of the park who here in the in the movie is presented as this genuinely optimistic yet kind of ambitious slash ruthless businessman like he's yeah there's a pretense to his character and there's a reality to his character like behind the scenes like on the one hand he's like this is the most amazing thing we've ever done and the park should be accessible to all and we've spared no expense in it and at the same time he's underpaying his staff to the point where they are engaging themselves in like espionage or yeah i don't know black market dealing or something Mm -hmm. whatever's going on there so there's, he's kind of greedy, but at the same time, there's a genuineness yeah. to also to that yeah. other part of him. Like he does really seem to be in awe of the creation itself. And he really yeah. seems to want to share it with others. Whereas in the book, he is pretty much just a plain villainous, greedy corporate jerk. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the interesting part is that the whole reason that he even created Jurassic Park is that if he used the genetic power for like pharmaceuticals or other like essential elements to a society, then that would be like a much bigger spotlight and it would be much more backlash for things to be affordable and things to be governed and there should be more bureaucratic layers. And he said like, but when you make some entertainment, something that's basically superfluous and just adds to people's lives, then you can charge whatever you want. And then you don't need like as much oversight because, you know, it's not essential to life. It's just entertainment. And yeah, he really in, in the book, he really wants to sell it just to like the rich families. And the, there's a comment in the movie. I think it's made by the attorney character that that they can charge like 10,000 a day and anyone will pay. And that's I think that's almost a line that's actually set by Hammond in the book. Yeah. 
spoiler alert for the book, I guess, he gets killed at the end by a pack of compies, the one that come back in the last world and they killed that one guy in the riverbed somewhere. I'm not sure if you remember that movie clearly. But anyways, there's a death scene in the last world that's basically yeah. the way that Hammond dies in this one. He gets pretty much eaten by his own creation. But yeah, that's something that I thought was really interesting, the way the motivations behind the park play into the kind of thematic meaning of it. And right, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure what your thoughts were on just Hammond's point of view and what the park means to him and by extension what it should mean to us. Yeah, that's interesting because Hammond in the in the film is naive in a sense, like, or he's painted as just kind of like, you know, oh, he thinks this will be this great, fun, cool thing. But then, like, he's just not careful enough or like the message of the film ends up being like, well, maybe if he had been more careful, he could have pulled it off. But it was this hubris of like bigger, best, like, let's go all out. Let's, you know, mm. let's get it up and running as fast as we can is kind of where things went wrong. Whereas what you're describing from the book is a little bit more of a cynical, like a character that's driven purely by profit motive. Yeah, he still has the same naivete about like the technical part of it. And right. Yeah. Like in the movie, he thinks he has it under control, even though he hasn't. It's just that his motivations are more like, yeah, I think cynical is a good way to put it. Like he wants to exploit it for profit, yeah. basically. That's his sole motivation. Whereas Steven Spielberg obviously makes it both the character Hammond look more sympathetic, but he also, mm -hmm. the movie as a whole feels like, even though the park went wrong, this whole idea was still mesmerizing and awe-inspiring and he definitely communicates a certain beautifulness through it all yeah yeah which i think is interesting the way it plays into the kind of dinosaurs as this metaphor for nature or the forces of nature at large and the way we think we can control it and yes even that there's maybe a desire for it because we see it as so awe-inspiring and so beautiful and so we want to have like some part of that or something or we want to be able to contain it in a way that is more convenient for us than just being witnesses on the outside this episode was brought to you by movie the curated streaming service showing hand-picked exceptional films from around the globe which both thomas and i have been big fans of for many years they have a fantastic library of amazing films and they add a new one every day whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, there's always something new to discover. And if you want to listen to more in-depth discussions about cinema, Mubi's acclaimed audio documentary series, The Mubi Podcast, returns this summer for its second season. This time it's going to focus on movie theaters themselves. It's titled Only in Theaters, and the new season will tell surprising stories of individual movie theaters that had a huge impact on film history, and in some cases, history in general. You can listen to the latest season of the movie podcast absolutely free wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to try movie itself, you can do so for free for 30 days by going to movie.com slash cinema of meaning. That's movie, M-U-B-I dot com slash cinema of meaning for 30 days of great cinema for free. Click the link in the description or go to movie.com slash cinema of meaning for your extended 30-day free trial. The changes from what you're describing, I think, make what's in the film a little bit more like relatable and immediate and kind of mm -hmm. personal in that like most of us probably aren't in an immediate tangible sense like relating to a character that's like, I'm out to just like maximize profit at all cost mm -hmm. and I'm Martin Shkreli or something. Whereas the idea of being kind of romanced by nature or technology or some kind of like ideal of progress that seems really cool and then having that like accidentally come back and bite us in the butt, mm -hmm. literally in this case, is a little bit more immediate and relatable. So who knows if that's why those changes were made or... Yeah, yeah. Part of the reason that I wanted to ask is because even after all these years, I still can't quite put my finger on what exactly Steven Spielberg's style is. There's definitely yeah. like people use the term Spielbergian filmmaking. Or at least I've seen it like numerous times, but I still can't quite articulate what it is. When you watch any of his movies, there's a clear 
we talked about like there's a grounded feeling yeah. to it. There's a physicality to it. It feels in some way very real and visceral and tangible. But at the same time, it's clearly also movie reality. Right. Yes. It's not realism. Yeah, it, but it's not magical right. yeah, yeah, realism, yeah. I don't no. think. It's still, it feels real, but it feels like a cinematic version of our own universe in a way. Because you obviously you have the exaggerated blocking and the deliberate camera yes. movements, but there's also the little things. Like I always thought it was kind of funny the way Ellie Sadler's character and goes into the breaker room or the the circuit room, and there's these big giant buttons that kind of light up individually, mm -hmm. and it's all the letters are big, and it's all it, it all feels like movies, fakery or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or when Nedry he takes his jeep and he hits the the way sign and then he tries to put it back up and then it spins around a big yeah. giant arrow that's <laughs> heading the, the wrong, wrong way or he doesn't know which way the, it's going but it's all like these exaggerated physical elements in the world also yeah i don't know what to make of it really and there's a lot of those backlights those dramatic backlights where there's basically a spotlight behind characters somewhere even though there's no real reason for that to be like a giant spotlight behind them but yeah it makes the movie feel kind of dreamy kind of Hollywood, like a sort of idealized version of what I imagined Hollywood would be like, like these giant big movie sets with animatronic dinosaurs, because it, it feels like a movie set, it feels fake, but at the same time, you're completely immersed in the reality of it all. It communicates something really special that I don't, I'm not quite able to articulate. I don't know if you've had a chance to see Spielberg's West Side Story remake. Yeah, I have. But it was interesting watching him do a musical because there's a lot of the same feeling watching that. And it kind of makes sense with his style fits so well into that kind of the heightened reality of a musical that in some sense, I think it almost illuminates some of what is going on. The era in which we kind of really came into film or like cut our teeth on, like as we mm -hmm. would have been teenagers, like realism was becoming a very prominent like aesthetic of film it was like we have digital cameras now lighting it becomes extremely naturalistic like handheld camera work is kind of the norm even big like action blockbuster directors like nolan probably being the biggest it's like realism is maybe the wrong word naturalism i think is mm -hmm. like a more appropriate term where it's like the lighting is all motivated we're gonna make it feel and look as real as possible even when ridiculous things are happening whereas you watch something like this and it definitely feels like it exists in a different space which is much more like almost conscious of itself as a story and not trying to like escape that but also like playing within those boundaries in a very creative and evocative way and i think like to me spielberg is like the pinnacle of a certain style or form of filmmaking that's mm -hmm. like the progression of hollywood like studio filmmaking and kind of the language of filmmaking that was being developed within american cinema and hollywood and just kind of like pushing that to its best ultimate form and possibility in as artistically credible a way as you can without like deconstructing it or really like mm, taking yeah. it apart, which is a lot of, I think what's happened like kind of in the last like 15 years. And so it feels like this different thing almost, but it is kind of hard to quantify, but yeah, it's a lot of like, to me, like the lighting and, and things are part of what places it, but like the camera work and the, the type and intentionality of that camera work is really absent mm. from a lot of modern work, I think. Because it, it, it does so much for the tone of a movie. Yes, because yeah. Jurassic Park, it's pretty, like, it has some scary, like, horror elements almost. But yeah. even, like, as a child, going back to my early experience with the movie, like, I still thought this was, like, a fun adventure. And I still had these overall optimistic or positive feelings yeah. when I think about the movie. It's not... Even though it ends up kind of denouncing its own idea and that maybe all of this was a bad idea, like it doesn't feel that way to me, or at least it didn't when I was young. And even now, like it still manages to communicate a certain excitement or like a dreaminess to it that maybe undercuts itself a little bit in what it's trying to say in its messaging about how there maybe shouldn't be a Jurassic Park, even though we just had like the time of our lives with it as a viewer, not as a character in the movie that is. <laughs> but I mean, even the characters in the movie, though, like 
you can mm -hmm. identify with the excitement and all that some of the characters are experiencing. Mm -hmm. Grant is the name of the little boy. Is that his name? Alan Grant is the main oh, character sorry. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim, I think uh, you're referring to. Yeah. Like they are both genuinely like, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. And that like, I don't think that reality is like completely disconnected from the reality of like, yeah, but also maybe we shouldn't bring like dinosaurs. Like if we did bring dinosaurs back to life, would that be probably a bad idea? Yes. Would it also be mm -hmm. awesome? Yes. <laughs> like I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't think those things are actually mutually exclusive or whatever. Mm -hmm. The movie lets you like get involved in that of like, this is cool. And then it's like, well, but yeah. also, you know, scary. <laughs> <laughs> it might even be like a kind of a moot point to say that, oh, maybe this shouldn't have happened because I think the story also communicates, or at least more clearly in the novel, that there's a certain inevitability to it, yeah, to certain elements of progress, just in a way that would have been great if we didn't invent like the atomic bomb, but it's Right. It's here now. It was probably inevitable that it was going to happen. So I think that's something that the movie also kind of touches on, that the way we should relate ourselves to progress or evolution. And even though we can have like, I think Malcolm is generally the voice of reason or supposed to be the voice of reason within the movie. Like he has the most concise insights, I think, in how this all operates and this whole chaos theory and how we cannot control or predict even complicated systems which is also greatly expanded on in the novel which was pretty cool like he talks about our fundamental incapacity even to this day to predict the weather beyond like a few days from now because when you have like such a complex system i think that's mentioned in the movie too the the butterfly thing where a butterfly flaps his wings somewhere on one side of the planet and then on the other side there will be a hurricane instead of sunshine or something right. like that and that's not because of that one single butterfly but because there's millions of other factors that you cannot comprehend in, in any sort of predictive model and that makes it kind of scary like there's there's the obvious point like to what extent can we control it and maybe should let go of control or be at least hesitant in yeah. engaging with these systems where we may not be able to predict where it's going to go. But at the same time, there's also that question of maybe that's not the right question to ask. Like maybe there is an inevitability to it that's maybe it's already out of our hands. Like that's maybe a good way to, to put it. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion. And there's there's a lot of things that I think one of the most relevant examples that springs to mind, there's been a lot of news about it right now. I don't know if you've been following it at all, but like mm -hmm. is the whole discussion around artificial intelligence and where that may be headed, mm -hmm. the potential dangers there. And there's a lot of people who feel are very concerned about it, you know, who are like, you know, we could create very intelligent AIs that could end up harming or damaging humans. Or even if it's not just like, even if it's not an intelligent AI, that like kills everybody before you get to that level there's mm -hmm. questions about like well what if we make an ai that takes out you know the jobs of millions of people it, you know if we can do that we are doing that trying to do that without much consideration as to whether or not that is something we should be doing but similar questions apply to certain types of social media where it's like oh let's make a a social media where all the children go on and like post photos of themselves. It's like, that's something we can do, but are we giving consideration to whether or not we should? And I think like some limitations are possible. We put some limitations in place and regulations in some places, but there also does often feel like an inevitability to a certain kind of progress of just like, well, the AIs are coming, they're getting better. And the questions of how do we deal with that are maybe the more relevant ones than like, can we stop it? But yeah, but with that yeah. example specifically, I feel a similar way that I feel about like resurrecting dinosaurs or something where I'm like, I look at a lot of the AI stuff and I'm like, this is so cool. And also it's scary. And like, it's impossible to unravel those feelings in myself. It also connects to the issue of responsibility because there is a kind of attitude from Hammond. I'm not sure if it's as clearly in the movie as in the novel that like he's basically like oh well if we're not gonna do it like someone else will so 
you can also take that inevitability as a kind of license sign yeah. to yeah or like as a do whatever you want as a way to absolve yourself from personal responsibility but of course if everyone thinks that way then the inevitability also becomes manifested in so it's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing but yeah yeah <laughs> are we all stuck in jurassic park who knows we're gonna have to look through the lines of code get the get the fences back online i absolutely love that sequence where they're crossing the fence and it's cross cut mm. with them trying to turn the power back on is the kind of just like cheeky like the dramatic irony of it is so beautiful and wonderful where they're like you want them to get the power back on and right when they're they're mm -hmm. finally getting to it all of a sudden it's like no you don't want them to do it that's a great kind of ability to bring together i don't i don't know play with like the emotions of the audience in the sense of like what mm -hmm. you're wanting what you're rooting for the suspense all these kinds of things that's very like fun and playful even in the midst of like the sense of tension or suspense or scariness and i think that goes back to something mm -hmm. you were talking about earlier where it's like it doesn't feel like this dark heavy yeah like horror movie it feels more like I think a that's, fun playful yeah. like thriller i think that's also where also as a sort of side note but there's some criticism for steven spielberg schindler's list they kind of come down to that point where he has yeah. there's a scene where not to get too deep into Schindler's List, but there's the scene where the, a lot of women are guided into these showers and you're kind of anticipating that it's like the gas showers from the, the in the concentration camps, but then there's the dramatic tension builds and then it turns out, it, oh, it's just regular showers. And then it's, it's kind of this classic Spielbergian moment of building tension and then having that kind of cheeky reverse that yeah. relieves the tension, but then you're doing also doing like a movie on the Holocaust, which... Right. Is that always appropriate? Yeah. Doesn't quite gel together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Jurassic Park, I think that's, it, it works better because it's it's obviously f so much further removed from reality and it's clearly yeah. this little child's imagination story almost. Like, this is the kind of story that I, there's obviously a reason that I connected with this as a child, I think, yeah. because that's basically what I was doing with my little doll dinosaurs. Like, right. just having them chase after like other puppets and doing that sort of stuff but yeah yeah it's very much the kind of scenario you would like play make-believe as mm -hmm. like you know or we would have been like pretending to run around in the woods or, or the park or something being chased by dinosaurs it has a mm -hmm. kind of childish playfulness to it that i think is great yeah even though it still has uh, as we've talked about it still has something to say like it doesn't it's not slight yeah, it's not like, oh, it's just running from dinosaurs. And that's something that I've seen with the newer movies or like some reactions to it. Like, like oh, just it's just movies about people and dinosaurs. Just enjoy it for what it is. And that to me feels like such a shame because it, you can have it both ways. You can have those entertaining yeah. aspects while still having a story that is about something meaningful. There's like the obvious themes, like I didn't mention them before because I think they're kind of chewed out at this point. The whole yeah. Dr. Grant's movement from not wanting children to at least opening up the possibility for to being a father, or at least there's some line that he has like, oh, maybe we need to evolve too. Like he is stuck in his own ways. And then through Jurassic Park, he learns that he needs to get with the evolution. There is a basic like thematic through line of just plain transformation that's there but i'm not sure if that's something that's super obvious to most people or that that it's just me who has seen too many videos dissecting <laughs> jurassic park already that it becomes too obvious to even talk about at this point yeah i don't know i i often sometimes wonder too if i'm like seeing things that are just like obvious or mm -hmm. i can't sort out my film analysis video essay brain from just like a normal <laughs> viewing experience but yeah, there's theme about children, which kind of like weirdly then like ties into the kind of like life finds a way this like idea of like life will find a way to continue kind of regardless of whatever 
and part of this story is like Dr. Grant coming around to being like, oh, you know, maybe maybe having kids isn't that bad. It's like life is finding a way amidst Dr. Grant, even if it takes a dinosaur park to convince him, which is kind of funny parallel. But yeah, I think like beyond that and kind of the like discussion about just like themes about life and evolution and also the themes about like, you know, hubris and technology that we've already kind of covered. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else? I've seen it very, you know, not very many times compared to you. I saw an interpretation once that kind of views it through a biblical lens with Jurassic Park being this kind of Garden of Eden and the dinosaurs being either angels or maybe the Tyrannosaurus was even God. And then at the end, the human beings were, they tried to meddle with the forces of God and they were cast out. Right, yes. But I couldn't find it anymore, and so I'm not sure how well it holds up under scrutiny. It fits the same story structure, but mm-hmm. I don't think there's any clear symbolism in the film to allude no. to that that I can think of. Sometimes when Spielberg does the spotlight backlighting, it kind of creates this angelic, angelic light yes, on certain yeah. characters. But I, yeah, I, I don't think that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> There's some interesting gender reflections as well on this movie. There's a lot of, it's kind of subtle, but when you start to look at it, it becomes really obvious at how much of a role gender plays in this movie. Like the yes. way all the dinosaurs are initially female, but then there's the life finds a way kind of thing. It It kind of flips around our conception that in nature, at least, like sex is this biological binary even though they like they displayed as plenty of species that can either change their own sex or even procreate without having a a partner from the other sex and that yeah there's just some interesting notes that i thought were like surprisingly progressive albeit probably unintentionally but it does contribute for me at least It, it, it kind of enhances the point about nature being more than it's always going to be greater than the kind of mental constructions we put around it like the moment we think we see something or we think we control it even just in our own social constructions then it will do something to subvert our understanding just in a way that we still we have like categories of like mammals and then birds and then there's the then at some point we discovered like the what's it called the platypus i think in english the (laughs) yes yeah yeah (laughs) the, the the kind of sort of category to water bird aquatic water bird, bird that <laughs> does the mammal kind of yeah. raising his children yeah but there's a lot of the things where like we project like certain constructions on nature and categories and then nature will always find a way to somehow subvert our expectations yeah yeah, yeah. make us seem stupid again <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's i think a bit of an under emphasized point in yes. a lot of yeah it talks about like we cannot control nature in like the more physical sense like we cannot contain it within a literal cage but it's also about how we may not be able to conceive of it like mentally and or at least not capture it completely in our own wisdom and our own knowledge and that's something that i thought was pretty interesting yeah it kind of plays with the traditional gender roles with the like hero that you might expect in a film like this too where like none of the guys in the movie kind of slot into the role of hero you kind of have all these guys like dr grant and you know hammond malcolm are like there and but then like there's very little like heroic action being taken Mm -hmm. he goes to save the kids which is kind of almost a subversion of like what you would expect the like i don't know i could just imagine a, a version of this movie where it's like the Indiana Jones version where you have this yeah. one guy who goes and like does all the stuff. So that's basically uh, Muldoon's character, the safari hunter guy who immediately gets outsmarted by the raptors the right, first yes. encounter he has with them. Yeah. But that's basically like today that would be, he would be the main character and he would be cast as Chris Pratt. But yeah. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> yeah. There's versions of this movie where you've got like the swashbuckling guy who knows how to deal with the, the dinosaurs and that just mm-hmm. like doesn't exist here instead you get like a cast of characters that all kind of have their flaws and all who do different heroic functions at different times but are mostly just trying Mm -hmm. to survive and escape i was thinking about that i was reading a piece about top gun maverick and like the kind of how the the leading man as a role 
is kind of disintegrating and like going away. And then mm-hmm. I watched this the same day and I was like, this was kind of an early harbinger mm-hmm. of that kind of movement, I think, away from like, there's a hero that's normally played by a guy and he's going to save the day. It's like, we don't get that in this movie. No. But at the same time, you don't miss it at all. Like, I yes, think these no, are still some of the most compelling characters ever put to screen. Like, and even though they don't necessarily have those traditional traits, maybe. But I, I think it because the movie is really effective at giving its characters these unique insights and skills, and then like tying them into the story in a way that makes them inseparable from it yeah yeah so they really all of them feel in their own way like integral not just to the plot but also to just the way the whole story functions it's it's so clear to the audience too what everyone's specialty is like malcolm is the kind of sort of jester who kind of humbles the king by showing him or like pointing out his hubris and then you have ali sadler who is more the she's the paleo but botanist she knows about the plants and she knows like so when they find the triceratops like she she's the one who knows how to handle that situation or she's able to provide some insight into it that none of the other characters would have been able to and then there's obviously alan grant who knows about the dinosaur so he knows when you encounter like a t-rex you do not move and when you encounter a raptor then you're screwed and it's probably already too late because they're super smart (laughs) Like that last point, for example, they communicate that in the one of the opening scenes of the movie. It's so, I don't know, it's just so clever in communicating a lot of these. There's that scene where he talks to this kid at the digging site about the raptor claw. Like he's found the raptor claw and he, the, the little kid's like, oh, it's just a big turkey. And then he explains to them like, well, the raptor, it's not like the T-Rex whose vision is based on movement. And they are like clever and he, he kind of demonstrates their attack pattern and it's it doesn't just tell us something about his character and the kind of knowledge that he has, but it's also already building some, like planting those seeds for later encounters. Like when we encounter the T-Rex for the first time, we already know as the audience, like, oh, yeah, they should probably not move. And then when that lawyer guy runs out, like, you know, like, oh, shit, that's, that's not going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's just a bit of a side note about, again, how good of a story this is yeah i think more people need to go back to some of these classics i'm a fan of a lot of stuff that like breaks form and kind of deconstructs traditional story convention or like structure Mm -hmm. i think a lot of times like story structure is adhered to in too like rigorous and formal way when you there's a lot more freedom to do stuff than sometimes people think but i do think that a lot of the tricks quote unquote that like made a lot of these like classics fun to watch like mm-hmm. the suspense the the elements of suspense how you know there was a setup you would like introduce a concept with a setup and then you would have like payoff later on for each thing you can construct a movie in such a way that it's like setting up a row of dominoes and then knocking them over it can produce this like very satisfying experience and there's a lot of just like writing i think that could benefit from that kind of approach and thinking and just not what we get sometimes these days which is just like how can you surprise the audience like it's like yeah subverting expectations is all built around like you know going on your merry way and then just trying to like sideswipe the audience out of yeah left but field. just doing like meta commentary and right look remember this or <laughs> yes <laughs> here's this thing you saw before yeah like there's a difference between making a reference to something that showed up in the past and something that's like a deliberate setup that is going to pay off like the setup is i'm giving you the audience a piece of knowledge that like you will then use to kind of like see a clue in the future about in like later on in the story you'll Mm. use that knowledge you got earlier in the story to like predict that something's going to happen or like see something like a second before the characters do or something like that and like that's that's satisfying just being like you remember this thing we showed you before here it is again that's not (laughs) that's not a a, upset up and payoff (laughs) but anyway (laughs) and rant about why Jurassic Park is better than... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not just about the good storytelling. It's also about the way it 
conveys something genuine, like it it, it channels yes, yeah. a genuine sense of excitement. Uh, we talked about this too in the Top Gun episode, I think, and a little bit in the the bonus episode we did on two thousand one, a space odyssey, which has which presents space and humanity within yeah. space with this sense of scale and grandeur that's kind of unapologetic about itself, but in yeah. that way also more beautiful and more special in some way that you cannot do if you're just like oh i need to kind of justify every shot in the sense that i like i cannot be arrogant like i need to not only show restraint but i also need to communicate that i've shown restraint or like right i need to get ahead of any possible comments like i need to explain every possible plot hole or undercut any real emotion with a quip at the end that shows like haha like I, I didn't really mean it don't blame me please <laughs> <laughs> just like the movie and go home <laughs> yeah <laughs> you have to have a certain level of commitment to, in order to be like put a character on screen and have the character be like wow i'm seeing this amazing shocking thing and then like show something after that but like as humans we're empathetic how we experience something is in part reflected by how the other people that are around us are perceiving and experiencing it, which is part of why we like going mm -hmm. to like concerts and actual movie theaters instead of just watching things at home is because how the people around us react to things affects how we react to things. And it's possible to channel that within a movie too, with like having the characters be like, wow, this is amazing. Or in like Top Gun, when the characters are like, wow, you're doing this you know, you could have somebody go like in a jet, like up a steep hill or something, fly over <laughs> like a cliff. And it's like you could see that and be like, OK, that's, you know, that's cool or whatever. But if all the characters are like, wow, that's really hard. That's really impressive that you pulled that off. Suddenly it feels more like impressive. Mm -hmm. But like in order to pull that kind of thing off in filmmaking, you have to have confidence to do that, to be like, I'm going to fake it till I make it and like have the characters act <laughs> like this is amazing. This is impressive. And maybe to some extent myself, it believe that it is. And in doing that, like it allows the audience to also believe, mm -hmm. believe that it is. So yeah, do, do that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes some courage because you, yeah, you're as a filmmaker, you're kind of putting yourself in a vulnerable position. Like you're saying yeah. like some, this is something that genuinely excites me or that, that kind of channels my own passion. And you're hoping that the audience will feel it as well. And it's easy to just then write in those little jokes that kind of cover your own butt in case it, it gets misconstrued as like pretentious or sentimental or cheesy or something. But yes, sometimes it's nice to have a movie that just goes for it and then goes out with a roaring T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to check us out on our creator-owned streaming service, Nebula where you can experience our podcast ad-free, listen to all of our episodes a week early, and get access to monthly bonus episodes that aren't available anywhere else. On Nebula, we for example covered the latest Doctor Strange movie and discussed Stanley Kubrick's classic 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right now, the best way to get access to Nebula is by signing up for CuriosityStream, which comes with a free Nebula subscription. To learn more, visit curiositystream.com slash cinemaofmeaning or just follow the link in the show notes. And we'll see you again next time.